Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I have to say that I am deeply concerned by what this audit didn't find. We didn't find records to accurately show how much was spent on what, who did the work, or how and why contracting decisions were made. And that paper trail should have existed. The Auditor General for Canada is speaking in those terms about a government initiative. They don't know where the money's gone. They don't even know how much money is gone. But it's gone. And that's the uh, Arrive Can app story. Significant questions continue to be raised in the wake of the Auditor General's investigation. And we're going to speak again with Conservative Member of Parliament, Larry Brock. He's a former prosecutor. And he posted to X yesterday, GC Strategies, Arrive Scam, Middlemen, who received $20 million for doing no work, still receiving taxpayer funds from active contracts with the Trudeau government. Unbelievable. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc also was quizzed at the Parliamentary Committee hearing about the privacy of Canadians having been violated by federal government agencies. Larry Brock joins us on The Roy Green Show. Mr. Brock, how are you? Thank you very much. I'm, I'm quite well. Thank you for inviting me back on your show. Roy. Yeah, it's, it's good to talk to you. This is a hugely important issue. And uh, it could be the proverbial tip of the iceberg, couldn't it? Oh, I, I truly believe so. This, this, in my view, is an explosive indictment on the Justin Trudeau government. And the opening quote that you uh, shared with the listenership uh, from the Auditor General raises another key issue. And the issue is not only were the documentation not there that should have been there, she also in her report says, I can't confirm what was destroyed. And that is a key phrase from my perspective with my background, because through the course of several weeks, several months, myself and other team members uh, really prosecuting this to the fullest extent, there have been uh, numerous examples, numerous examples of criminality. And I think I raised a little bit of this uh, last week on your show. I have identified uh, four key charges that the RCMP should be investigating, that being forgery, fraud, obstruction of justice, and breach of trust by public officer, all of which can be prosecuted by indictment. And upon conviction, individuals could receive prison sentences in excess of two years. That is why our leader, Pierre Polyev, on the 13th of uh, this month, wrote specifically to the commissioner, identifying those key areas, identifying the concerns raised by the Auditor General, and inviting them to uh, broaden the scope of their investigation. Currently, right now, they're only investigating a portion of some allegations related to why? the Canada border. Why, why Mr. Agency. Brock? Why, why are they only investigating a portion of it? Because the complaint, this how this all started, Roy, was uh, back in the fall of uh, 2022. A two-person software company out of Montreal by the name of Bottler AI contracted uh, with the CBSA to develop an app to assist the organization with employees reporting harassment. 
they were instructed to work with the GC Strategies, the infamous two-person firm that works out of their basement. They had some significant concerns that instead of dealing directly with the government, they were now dealing with this consulting company. So they started to record conversations, and uh, something did not seem right to them. Ultimately, they weren't paid for the work that they were doing, and they laid a formal complaint, delivered a formal complaint to the president uh, of uh, CBSA. Mm-hmm. Upon receiving that complaint, the president then turned the matters over to the RCMP because there was examples of criminality, and the RCMP then commenced an investigation. So that part is true to the extent now that it should be widened. We haven't received confirmation as of yet, this being February the 17th, whether the RCMP will take up the invitation to expand the scope. How cooperative and believable is the Liberal government being when they speak to this with you? Well, proof is in the pudding, Roy. You know, I go back... I go back to uh, January of 2023 when the news first broke that the Arrive Can app had substantially, uh, sorry, substantially increased in costs from the original 80,000 budgeted expense to, you know, tens of millions of dollars. That was almost 14, 13 months ago. At that time in the House, the Prime Minister essentially said as follows, that the ArriveCAN contracting process appears illogical and inefficient, and he promised to look into it. Well, in fact, not only did he not look into it, his ministers did not look into it. And literally to this day, February 17th, 2024, uh, GC Strategies is still under contract with the government of Canada. Oh, I know. I was on their millions, but still receiving work from the government of Canada. I was on their website yesterday, Mr. Pratt, Mr. Brock, rather. I was on their website yesterday. They're still in business. Yes. They're still doing work with the government, clearly. They say they They are. are. That's quite, that was quite revealing to me. I thought, wow, this this is, it caught me by surprise, actually, because it's a very professional looking website, but I thought, so so this is still ongoing. So you don't, I, I was going to ask you, What's your confidence level in the various investigations that are going on now? But you're not sure how many, if I understand you correctly, you're not sure how many are going on or how many may may be started or how many have just been abandoned. I I don't know. So you're like the Auditor General. You don't know either. you You don't know. And I think what it is, is it's really emblematic of the concerns that every Canadian should have regarding the management practices the contracts and the policies across the whole spectrum of all federal departments. If it's this bad at the CBSA, one cannot assume that this is an isolated incident, but it's emblematic of a culture of incompetence and not being cognizant and aware and respects respectful to the taxpayer. So so the so the focus the focus was really then on the Canada Border Services Agency, yes? Yes. Okay. The Canada Border Service Agencies, as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada, okay. and Public Services and Procurement Canada, all st- three are under the microscope right now. If you're not a member of Parliament and you're a prosecutor, and this comes onto your desk, and they say, uh, 
Uh, Larry, get at this. Where do you start? Well, before I, I, I answer that question, I'm hoping that the investigator, whoever that is from that particular police service, would have sufficient evidence to raise this to a concern that uh, they have reasonable and probable grounds to charge someone for a criminal offense. As a prosecutor, once we have a package of material with evidence and witness statements and the like, we have to ask ourselves two key questions. And this would apply, Roy, to a charge of mischief, to a charge of shoplifting, all the way to homicide. You ask yourself two key questions. Number one, is there a public interest to continue the prosecution? And number two, is there a reasonable prospect of a conviction? Clearly, both both questions in relation to the evidence that I have seen so far, not looking at specific individuals per se, but looking at the evidence to support the charges that I identified, raises concerns that the RCMP should seriously be looking at, if not already looking at. I know they have reviewed the Auditor General's report. I know that they had a discussion with the Auditor General, and she has invited the RCMP to even seek production orders to further their investigation. So I think that is going to be in the works, Roy. But I think the bigger and broader question that needs to be asked is, where is the ministerial responsibility for this boondoggle? Are we led to believe that for the two and a half years that 177 different versions of the Arrive Can app with out of control spending, no management, no oversight, improper invoices, just doling out cash, millions after millions after millions, unknown to the minister? Are they completely asleep at the wheel? Were they not asking for deliverables? Were they not asking for updates from their deputy ministers, the presidents of the organizations I've identified? I think so far this entire week has been a very, very poor week for Justin Trudeau and his government. And so far they're putting up the firewall by suggesting to Canadians, inappropriately in my view, nothing to see here. This is a problem yeah, I've heard with that. public service. We're going to address it, but it's not our fault. Yeah, I've heard that. So let, let me just try to encapsulate some of what you said in the last 10 minutes. So the federal government farmed out the development of ArriveCan. Now, Mr. Trudeau hired 98,000 new federal public servants since 2015. So that's a lot of new public servants. And you think within that number or the pre-existing number of public servants, it would include individuals skilled in producing the Arrive Can app in-house. Yet instead, money flowed to individuals and questionable firms with spending records barely, if at all, kept. So the question becomes, how does that work? Because on a very personal level, I'm not hiring a contractor who won't tell me exactly what the money I'm paying will be spent on. Absolutely. You got to remember as well, Roy, back in 2015, when Justin Trudeau won the election, he promised, he promised Canadians that he was going to cut back spending on external consultants. Mm -hmm. He did anything. Yeah, I remember that. 
He has raised the spending on external uh, consultants over the last eight and a half years by 88%. Last year alone, he spent 157 billion dollars while still raising the federal public service by 40%. Two days ago, I'm part of the ethics committee on Parliament Hill. We heard from uh, presidents and vice presidents of the various unions that represent the federal public service, and they laid into the government in terms of how disrespectful, how angry they are with the government in terms of its use of external consultants, and I heard specifically from from one president okay. who represents IT professionals that the government has hired. Well, okay, so let me ask you this. What is happening at the committee level in Parliament as you investigate ArriveCan? Because I know the, uh, the committee was shut down uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when the Liberals, the Bloc Québécois, and the NDP, I think they used the word scary, which is, which is rather infantile, given what, who you are and what you guys are doing and gals are doing. Um, so what's happening at the committee level? Well, Roy, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, o- over the course of probably about a month and a half, um, we have seen a trend that when anything becomes controversial for the government, when anything seems to be gaining legs in terms of a lack of transparency and accountability, the um, Liberals with their NDP coalition partners um, routinely will shut down debate, will adjourn committee meetings. Um, in fact, completely related to this particular scandal, scam that I like to call it, when the Auditor General appeared last fall, early last fall, at a particular committee that I was invited to attend, just to give committee members an update as to where her investigation stood. She informed us that she only found out that the RCMP were investigating the CBSA and some of its employees, not from the CBA itself, not from Justin Trudeau or the government itself, but rather reading the news article in the Globe and Mail. So the Auditor General agreed to appear for two hours after that embarrassing news that came out that she wasn't informed by anyone until she read the paper. Quickly, the Liberals shut down uh, the committee. So literally after 10 minutes of a two-hour meeting, they shut it down. They adjourned it. They had the numbers, of course, with the NDP support to to shut it down. And this really has been uh, a pattern, a pattern of... um, uh, whenever they feel things are uncomfortable or potentially embarrassing or more questions will be put to them, they routinely shut it down again with their NDP partners. Now, case in point to your comment about last week, or a week and a half ago, when a Liberal member deemed the information that we were about to receive from the investigator of the CBSA, that it was too scary to continue. Too scary. It's childish. Opinion, Roy, it's too scary for the for the federal government. That's charity. Mr. Brock, it's it's childish to use the word scary when you're talking about a a really significant national issue involving the federal government. You don't use words like scary. That's Halloween talk. Maybe I'm being too uh, too picky, but 
Anyway, I was, I was just going to say, because you and I were talking, you were talking about consultants uh, all over the place. They need to put consultants in the parliamentary ethics office. Yes. That's where they need them. Yes. Do you have an idea? Do you have any timeline idea of how long this is going to take? Or are they going to try to submerge this, make it go away, get uh, have Canadians experience, you know, arrive can fatigue? I, I wish, Roy, I could provide you and your listenership with some guidelines as to what we can expect. I think at this point we've got three committees already, possibly a fourth that's examining various layers of this ARRIVE scam. Um, that I think witnesses uh, will be probably called until at least June, if not beyond the next sitting. As far as the RCMP is concerned, again, I can't opine on that. They take whatever time is necessary to complete an investigation. But if I could draw another parallel, the SNC-Lavalin scandal from several years ago apparently is still being investigated by the RCMP. And I'm looking forward to hearing about the status of that investigation when the commissioner appears at the end of this month. So I wish I could provide a finite timeline, Roy, but there's so many layers to this uh, this scam and the scandal. We're simply scratching at the surface. So the Auditor General doesn't know how much money's involved, and this this is what that department does. They track money, and they know how to do it. They're the experts at it. So she doesn't know how much money was involved. She took the guesstimate at $59.5 million. Do you have a dollar figure that's sort of front and center with you that you think nope. it might be? No, I don't, because the government is not being honest with Canadians. Uh, originally budgeted at $80,000. After a couple of versions, it jumped to $2.5 million. Then we heard possibly $24 million. Now, at least is the operative term, at least $59.5. We round up to $60 million, of which $12 million wasn't even on the Arrive Cam uh, app. So again, mismanagement, the numbers are not accurate. That also doesn't include, Roy, the millions, tens of millions of dollars of the work that the public service did on this particular app. I wouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves well into the 80 or $90 million range after all is said and done. Another big takeaway as well, this two-person GC company, pers- a company that works out of its basement. Originally, so many people, including government officials, including the uh, operator of GC Strategies, confirmed that they only received $11 million of taxpayer funds for the so-called work that they did on this ARRIVE scam. But the Auditor General has found that that was inaccurate. It was actually $20 million for doing nothing other than connecting the government of Canada with IT professionals. If that's not the <laughs> definition of hitting the taxpayer lottery, I don't know what is. Well, you know, it's, you can confuse 11 million with 20 million. I do it all the time. <laughs> let me just let me just ask you this question. I, I, I want to veer away from the uh, arrive can for a moment and just get let's just ask you to wear your prosecutor's hat for a moment. Let's read you the global news story. The RCMP announced Friday. They're laying two additional charges against a young person, the force arrested in late December, on terror-related charges. 
for allegedly plotting an attack on the Jewish community. They have also charged a second young person as an alleged co-conspirator, the force said in a statement. In the statement, RCMP Federal Policing Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, NSET, said the first person has remained in custody. After an ongoing investigation, the youth received two additional charges on February 15 for allegedly conspiring and agreeing to commit murder at the direction or in association with a terrorist group and knowingly facilitating terrorist activity by making available and exchanging instructional material and propaganda. This is according to the RCMP. As a result of the same investigation, the second young person is charged with trying to acquire a prohibited firearm to facilitate terror activity. This is this is all deeply concerning, and I won't ask you to go on the record here. But as a and oh, the RCMP also warned yesterday of a quote growing trend of violent extremism end quote and youth involvement. As someone who who, who lived in the courts and, and prosecuted, how worried does this make you feel? I think, uh, well, I'm personally worried. I think everyone in this country should be worried at the alarming trends of violent extremism. Uh, there's just so many examples. You just cited one example of thousands of examples that I've been hearing about literally over the last two years. And it's not just confined to this country. This is happening all over North America and many parts of Europe. So I think I'll leave that to the RCMP to fully investigate, and I hope that the Department of Justice lawyers certainly have the tools necessary to bring, to bring people to justice and to hold them accountable. Okay. Well, they have the people. We know that. They have 98,000 new employees, not just the Department of Justice, but the federal government since 2015. So, uh, Mr. Brock, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the, the additional time. And uh, this is an issue that I don't think Canadians will let go of. I think we're going to see people across this country demanding answers because what we're getting now is just too weird to even begin to believe. A lot of people expected something like this, but not for the amount. Uh, but this is a very dishonest man. This is a man that's been overturned already on this case four times. But a crooked New York State judge just ruled that I have to pay a fine of $355 million for having built a perfect company. So uh, not a good week for the 45th president of the United States, $355 million fine. We're speaking again with uh, Michael Buckner, former assistant district attorney in the Rockets Bureau of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Mr. Buckner joined us in October of last year when the uh, trial of Donald Trump began. It was described then as a $250 million trial. And Mr. Buckner, thank you very much for coming back on the program. $355 million fine. Are you at all surprised at either the verdict or the size of the fine? Uh, I'm not. The judge was very clear. First of all, uh, nice to speak with you again, but um, no, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, the judge telegraphed uh, very clearly that there was going to be a very substantial fine. And the 355, by the way, is with 9% interest beginning in 2019. So it's really closer probably to 425 or $450 million fine. So uh, it's an enormous amount of money. Uh, and uh, many people are questioning whether Trump has the financial ability to even meet um, this fine. And so, and he's responsible for the entire fine, is he? Or are there ways Correct. and means to reduce the amount and or pay a lesser amount? The, the, the only way to reduce it um, is if an appellate court decides that the number is erroneous or that the court made some type of error and concludes otherwise. 
Um, what, what Trump has to do at this point is, um, and <clears throat> I understand what he's doing, is he's speaking with what are bonding companies. So in New York, you have 30 days to appeal a court's decision or to file a notice that you intend to appeal the decision. But to do that, you've got to, in order to stop the money from having to be paid all up front, you've got to go to a bonding company. And that bonding company generally charges 10% of the amount of the judgment that, that's requested as a non-refundable fee. So which means is he'll have to come up with about $45 million non-refundable. And in exchange for that, the bonding company, um, so long as Trump collateralizes the rest of what is owed, will then assure the courts that they will uh, make sure that that money is paid. Uh, if that happens, it will stop the collection process um, from occurring while the appeal is pending. Otherwise, he's got to come up with that dough uh, within 30 days. Mr. Bachman, Mr. Trump complains the trial was a witch hunt and the prosecutor and judge are in cahoots to attempt to destroy him and block his road to the presidency. Do you have any, uh, any empathy or sympathy for his so, case? So, so it's interesting. The statute under which Trump, um, Mr. Trump was, uh, was uh, charged by the Attorney General's office is a statute that went into effect in New York in 1956. Um, it does not require the government to prove or the attorney general's office to prove that the defendant um, ever actually, that there was ever actually a financial victim. So if you make a false statement during the course of your business dealings in the state of New York, and it is pervasive, those, those false statements, even if there's no victim, even if no one lost any money, you can be charged under the statute and be forced to disgorge, give back any profits you generated as a result of, as a result of, the, uh, of the conduct. Um, the statute generally is used when there are people who are defrauded. It's, it's that strong a statute. And Donald Trump knows that because that statute was used against him already in connection with Donald Trump University, where um, he's alleged to have committed a massive fraud by charging people crazy amounts of money um, to go to his college. And they said that, you know, it was all a fraud. And he ended up giving back a lot of money. So he's aware of the breadth of that statute. But that all being said, Deutsche Bank, um, which is the bank involved in this case primarily, they said that they were not victims of any fraud. Trump is correct. They all said that um, they understood that the properties that he was uh, posting were way overvalued. They took that into effect and they gave him the loan anyway. Um, but New York State does have the authority under that statute to proceed against them. Was it aggressive? It was aggressive. But, you know, Donald Trump's, uh, the evidence against Trump at that trial, I've read the opinion, it's a 92-page, very detailed opinion. The level of false statements that the Trump organization was making were just incredible. You know, they were really just way, way over the top. Um, okay. So, um, you know, he unfortunately made his bed, and, uh, and look, you know, like Trump or not like Trump, like him or don't like him, you know, the problem with Trump, and the judge said this in his opinion, is, for Donald Trump, there's nobody who's a victim but him. Right. Um, you know, he, there was no no indications of any type of remorse um, by him. No indications that you know maybe he shouldn't have done this. And, okay. Uh, you know, so they're they're basically going to give his business the death penalty here in New York. Listen for the screeching sound as the world stops its bullish view of Canada as we stumble from world leader to world laggard under Mr. Trudeau and his liberals, as far as the economy is concerned. 
In an op-ed by Philip Cross in the Financial Post, he writes, from swaggering to staggering, Canada's decline into irrelevance. Now, just a few things before we talk to Dr. Can. In 2006, Canada's economic performance was so outstanding, the economist wrote of Canada as an economic superstar, quote, end quote. And, quoting again, the only country running current account and budget surpluses, end quote. In 2012, the OECD gushed over this country, forecasting our economic growth would lead the G7 over the next 50 years. Well, Philip Cross was appointed StatScan Chief Economic Analyst in 2008, and uh, he wrote that the financial sector has toppled and Canada, Canada's financial sector, and this country is known for being, quote, an ATM and safe deposit box for money laundering. Now, you want to hear this as well. The OECD, which was gushing over Canada in 2012, last year, you won't hear this from Ms. Freeland and the Liberal Caucus. The OECD last year downgraded Canada's prospects for economic growth through 2060 to dead last out of 38 countries. Hey, we're number 38. <laughs> we were number one. Now we're number 38 or will be, really. It's, it's very concerning. And guess what's most damaging to Canada's economy? According to the OECD, quote, the obstacles governments have deployed to hamper our energy industry, end quote. In 2022, Justin Trudeau claimed there is no business case to support LNG exports to Europe when the Chancellor of Germany came here, desperately wanting LNG from this country. So what happened? American firms, trust the Americans, they signed no fewer than 57 supply agreements with Europe for 73 million metric tons of LNG annually, according to the Wall Street Journal. That's all I have to say. Let me turn it over to my good friend, Professor Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Dr. Cam, we're number 38. Hi, Roy. Hi. Uh, number 38 with a bullet. Uh, the problem is the bullet is facing the wrong direction. Um, yeah, it's a rough time. It seems that whenever I come on your show, there's always something new to cultivate. And our country seems to be a race to the bottom. And you brought up a really good point to start up today, which is, you know, to old people like me, young people like you, 2008, 2009 is yesterday. And yesterday, we really were a thriving G7 nation. And to dig a little bit into that article, I thought it was interesting that the author wrote three things were really driving us. And he was exactly right. We had a AAA credit rating, which was well-deserved, a very stable macroeconomic economy, and we had resource riches. All three of those things were true. And if you add them up, not only was it a positive outlook, but at the time, the dollar was at par with the United States. And a lot of people said that our little loony, that little annoying thing jiggling in your pocket, is ready to join the global elite currencies of the world. And so what's sad, Roy, and we'll get into this, is that you fast forward, really to me, not that far, and the AAA credit rating has been downgraded. We don't have a stable economy. We have a flat economy trending downward. 
And resource riches, I think this is the most frustrating part, and you mentioned it. We're still resource rich. We just don't do anything with them. And the harm from discouraging oil and gas, you know, was never so prominent after Russia invaded the Ukraine. The world, especially Europe, was crying out for our oil. And we had no incentive, no government push to send it to them. So your quote from the LNG was really true. And so where do we stand today? Well, you know, second verse, same as the first. Our macro indicators are still flat, still trending downward. And I think the one new thing we should talk about today, but I'll take a breath, is this week's statistics that have come out on personal and corporate bankruptcies, Roy. Oh, okay. So we're number 38, according to the OECD, dead last between now and 2060 for economic growth. And so the, I guess it's a natural uh, segue to bankruptcies, Dr. Cam. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, some new numbers came out this week. Um, the total number of insolvencies in this country, Roy, in 2023, lest we forget, was up by the previous year by 23%. And businesses, and most of them small, was 41% higher than it was the previous year. And so this is a very, very scary trend. And where is it stemming from? Well, I knocked on a few doors, and I think a lot of it, we're right back to that old Serb discussion that you and I have had far too many times, that last month, if people don't know, small businesses faced a hard deadline to repay any interest-free loans that they had during the pandemic. And of the 900,000 companies that took the government support, Roy, one-fifth have not yet repaid those loans. And that is a staggering number. And the biggest problem, of course, is that those loans were taken out at minuscule percentages. And now, if they haven't paid that money back, then the debt that they incur on those loans has gone up from about 1% to about 5%. So not only are we stuck in a time where businesses are being hurt on the demand side and on the supply side, as we've said on the show before, right? Demand is not where it was before the pandemic. Input costs are much higher than they were. But now the debt that they've had to incur has gone up 10 times, not a factor of 10, but 10 times by the Bank of Canada by raising the prime from 0.25 to five. And so the question now is not, will there be more bankruptcies in 2024 than there was in 2023? The question, Roy, is only how many and what is it gonna do to our economy? Spoiler alert, nothing good, Roy. Yeah. When you and I talk, and you talk as you just have, I always think about your students at uh, TMU, and I asked you last time you were on the air with us what it is they think, and please repeat what you told us about what's most important to your students, because what should be attainable to them, this country has the clout, if we'd only use it, to be economically sound and strong. Share with us, please, what, the, what your students' concerns are. My students really have two concerns. I shared one, one with you the last time we spoke, 
which is when they say, Dr. Cam, have I, am I ever going to afford to own a home? And unlike the generations that come came before them, the answer now, if you look at probability, the answer is probably not in an urban center. And that leaves students wondering on so many levels, not just on a macro level of where am I going to be, but they also look around the halls of the university and go, and why am I here? Because I thought I was here to invest in human capital so I could buy that house. So it is up to me and my colleagues to, of course, settle down the hysteria and let them know that that investment is still the number one way of getting out of economic issues. Education is still the number one way of getting some solvency in your life. But the number two question that they ask, and I think it's an excellent question, is they want to know why, and I hate to put it like this, but I will, why is the government so stupid? And why are the lessons that we learn, not only in the lecture hall, but at home, not maintained by the people in charge? And let me give you a quick example. When we talk about debt, I often go into that there's good debt and bad debt. And the worst debt for consumers, Roy, it's no secret, credit card debt. Do you know right now in this country, Canadians owe $12 billion in credit card debt, 16% higher than last year. And so my students say, you've made a good point here, sir. We understand it. Why doesn't the country? And I say that as an open letter to the prime minister and his team. Why doesn't the government understand it, Roy? Yeah, well, when we look at consumer debt, non-mortgage debt, consumer debt, it's massive, absolutely massive. And how people are going to get out of that is 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 actually, for me, impossible to to calculate. Well, I've I've spoken on the air many times with our callers who've been kind enough to actually share their personal difficulties, uh, Doctor Cam, and it's so sad to hear. Because these are people who, who care, who want to succeed, want their kids to succeed, want to get out and, 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 and do things positively, and they just feel they're blocked at every corner. They are blocked at every corner right now, and it's a vicious cycle. And it goes back to our first topic, from debt to bankruptcy to debt to bankruptcy, and the vicious circle has to end. But as I've said before, and I hate to leave on a negative note, this government doesn't seem to have the propensity to want to establish anything firm other than a net zero green initiative. And it breaks my heart. I say it all the time as a professor, a father, and a Canadian. We could be doing so much more, but there's no initiative on the part of our leaders, and we have to sit back and take it, Roy. We are going to be talking about the... Um study that was done at McMaster University, which shows and suggests very strongly, it's a two-year review by researchers at McMaster of COVID-19 in schools and daycares. It's shown that schools and daycares were not a source of significant virus transmission when infection prevention and control measures were engaged. Oh my, uh, what's, what's the prescription for Phone failure, Dr. Rao. What's the prescription? What would you... Because uh, it's turning into an infectious disease here. <laughs> well, I succeeded. What's that? At least I succeeded. You did succeed. Thank you very much for uh, for playing ball with us and changing the time.
of our uh, of our interview. So I was just saying that a two-year review by researchers at McMaster University of COVID-19 in schools and daycares has shown schools and daycares were not a source of significant virus transmission when infection prevention and control measures were engaged. And this was a study that was published on Thursday in the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health and included more than 34,000 references in childcare settings and schools worldwide. You were with us, infectious diseases specialist at Halton Healthcare in Ontario, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. You repeatedly told us during the pandemic, and you wrote op-eds on it, that just closing the schools not the answer. They should have listened. I know there's an I told you so side to this, but I want to reflect a bit on what made people do this. And the other thing I wanted to reflect on is, are we going to do the same thing again with the next one, say an influenza pandemic? So looking back at the rationale, it was about trying to stop the virus transmission. And the argument went that, wow, if kids are the vector of this virus, even if they're not sickened by it, but if they are spreading this virus, if we close schools, we are going to somehow stop the circulation of the virus. And by stopping the circulation of the virus, we'll have fewer cases in adults and elder adults, which in turn will protect the healthcare system from strain. That's very, very indirect as a way to solve a problem. And it's what Jay Bhattacharya has called trickle-down epidemiology jokingly, but there's an element of truth to it. We were very indirectly putting kids on the altar of sacrifice to try and stop the circulation of the virus amongst a more vulnerable other population to provide this indirect benefit. The problem with the strategy is that the collateral damage to these kids is phenomenal and it's long lasting. And you have kids in their formative years who are teenagers who are trying to finish high school and who are already potentially vulnerable to being disengaged, you know, with the attention deficit disorder, trouble focusing. And then you create a situation where they can't attend school in person and they fall off Zoom as their parents are engaged, also working on Zoom, and they can't really hold their hand and get them back onto their computer. And then the consequences are quite huge after the dust settles from the pandemic. Some kids last and others lose interest and have their math scores fall backwards or their achievements fall backwards and they never recover it. You don't get a retake with parenting. They don't get to retake grade 10, 11, 12, say, just as an example. I'm not even discussing other sociological consequences, having uh, poor people unable to go to work because their kids can't go to school. School doubles as daycare for some people to some degree. So all of those things go to, do not get taken back. And those are the things that really worried me through COVID, that we were doing something for a group of people being namely kids, provide an indirect benefit to another group and also to maintain healthcare capacity, which could have been solved by just improving healthcare capacity. I, I think after the vaccine was available, it's even more amazing that we had school closures because we had a population that was protected by the vaccination from severe disease, even if it didn't stop transmission of the virus. So why did we keep doing it? That's a big question. And then why the disparity between Ontario, where I live, where we had 360 days of school closures, which is more than any place in Canada and one of the longest in the world. And what made that happen? And I think 
the media is in part to blame. I use the word media in a very broad way, but some mainstream media outlets covered only one side of the story and didn't allow politicians the wiggle room, the pivot space to change policy. That's my diatribe. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's good. I mean, I spoke with Dr. Bhattacharya on uh, several occasions and with you and with Dr. Fulford, and I read the op-eds, and we talked about it on the air. And when I first saw the story about this McMaster study, and it was conducted over a two-year period, I thought, well, that started uh, over two years ago. And uh, so somebody had those thoughts more than two years ago. We better have a look and see whether we did the right thing or not. So there was an element of doubt that really wasn't publicly expressed in the greater arena, don't you think? Well, it was seen as heresy to say what I said. Um, I faced a calumny for that. There's no question. The interesting thing about this study, it's actually a review of the available literature as it has become available. So the authors of that recent paper or review would say that, look, they were analyzing the data. They couldn't make decisions in real time. And you'll always hear this pandemic fog of war defense. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were, you know, shooting in the dark, et cetera. It's forgivable to a minimal degree before we had a vaccine. It is absolutely reprehensible that this continued after we had a vaccine. And as we knew more about the virus and about its impact on kids, what is concerning to me in that review is that the authors do say that, listen, vaccination helped suppress transmission and better ventilation helped prevent transmission, potentially. That may be true, but what if we had a virus that did spread amongst kids for which we didn't have a vaccine? Say it was influenza, a new version of influenza, and say that we couldn't put the best propeller fans in every single public school you know, classroom. Does that mean we then just close the schools again? And my answer is, I don't think we should. I think this should be like an essential service. I mean, if you keep liquor stores open and you keep all the Amazon warehouses open and Uber Eats keeps coming and grocery stores are open, you're not completely shutting those things down. So why are we shutting down schools? And look at the nefarious consequences for kids after the fact that you don't get to take back. Something's that the hamster wheel has to continue in yeah. the next pandemic. You know, I've, I've opened the phone lines in the past. And we've talked to parents about what they see different in their children after not attending school, after not socializing with their friends, after being isolated for almost a year uh, at a time. And the change, and you know this better than I, I just talk to people on the, on the air, and I, I've talked to people personally as well, of course, but... And, and parents almost start, one parent actually started to cry about the changes in her children's lives. And she said, how am I going to fix this? And how, how do, I mean, you're, you're an infectious disease specialist, not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but how do you fix this for the generation that's undergone this? Yeah, so I, so I speak as a parent. I, that, that's the problem. I don't think it's easy. I got lucky as a parent, as a single dad. I was able to have a, a son who focused, but that's not what happened to everybody. You know, I, um, it, the, the problem is you don't get a second chance at this and you do your best. Um, I think people who are well-resourced, kids in private school or a stay-at-home parent, highly educated, could kind of take over. They did better. I mean, we didn't even talk about sports 
training and sports achievements and laws of sports development, yeah. musical development, theatrical development. Yeah. You know, there's a whole generation of artists or art, art would be artists who are, who are stunted as well. I mean, it, you know, imagine if you're a high level, you know, athlete and you can't do your training. I mean, they tried to make exceptions, but there was still a bit of this. Uh, let's just stop everything to stop the virus. And there was no proportionality. And uh, unfortunately, no one looked at other jurisdictions. I kept talking about, of course, evil Sweden. And they're not so evil anymore. Uh, but I kept talking about Sweden. We even talked about some of the states in the U.S. that were led by Republican governors. Republican jurisdictions did not close schools to the same degree as Democrat jurisdictions. It's well yeah. known and it's well accepted. Dr. Rao, we have to stop here. But this this conversation cannot end now. Mm-hmm. This this conversation, this issue, doesn't get put to bed with this report from McMaster University. It has to continue. There has to be something. There has to be a policy that is cast in stone. That This is what we're going to do next time because as an infectious disease specialist, you're going to tell me, and I'm going to believe you, there will be a next time. Yep. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.